0: Welcome to episode 59 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sycharmer trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players by going to psycharmororg forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Air Force veteran Dr. Dino Cooper, Dr. Cooper is a U.S. Air Force wounded warrior who works with PsychArmor as part of their Employment Education Initiative program. Dr. Cooper is now an organizational behavioral consultant. As part of PsychArmor's program department, Dr. Cooper brings nearly three decades of Air Force leadership experience to the organization. She also coordinates PsychArmor's External Evaluation and Assessment program. You can find out more about Dr. Cooper by checking out her bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. As a recently retired Air Force officer, I'm interested in hearing about your military journey and your transition, as well as what you find yourself doing in post-military life.
1: Thank you, Duane, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast and to have these conversations. Interestingly enough, when I joined the Air Force, I thought I was going to stay for four years. Have served my country and then I was gonna go off and join the DC circuit and and work for a congressman. I just had this vision of what was gonna be. And as it turns out, why you join is an interesting question, but why you stay is way more interesting. And so after 28 and a half years, I can say that there was far more good than bad. And that's to me, that's like a that's success. I started off as a support officer and then got into the human resource side of things and then I got into academia. So I guess I would describe my military journey as dual-tracked. On one side, I had those really cool command experiences. And then on the other side, I was an academic and Air Force. Can you believe this? The Air Force paid for three masters and a PhD. Sometimes I can't find my car, but on paper, I, I look like I'm cooking with oil. So it was interesting to have these two sides of my career. And towards the end, I was I think I had a brand for being an internal consultant. If there was a very interesting challenge or a scandal in some cases, I was asked to join small groups of teams to understand what happened, why it happened, and ways to move past that and transform. My PhD is in organizational behavior. And I find that the military had extraordinary practices and policies that are ahead of the corporate world in so many places, especially in this diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging stream. But I did have a career where I ended up as an Air Force wounded warrior, and that's how I ended up leaving a couple years earlier than I thought. Part of it was some trauma from a deployment and then Another part of that was a bizarre medical event where I ended up having an air gas embolism, following a routine endoscopy for what I thought was just a normal sort of ulcer. And so I had to spend about a year and a half rebuilding myself. And during that time, a physical impairment, some of the the heavy stuff from a deployment also started to raise its head. And so I received really great treatment as I was leaving the the military so my transition story is a little bit unique that way
0: and as you were talking though it's unique but in the very same way The Army, for me, paid for an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, and two master's degrees. And so I'm like the most educated, you know, but of course, people know that there are educational opportunities, but there are opportunities that the military does that. And then in the same way, one of the reasons why I got out earlier than I anticipated was I got injured jumping out of airplanes. But again, your transition story is a little unique in its details, but it can be very non-unique in its generality because a lot of that's something I think that would resonate with a lot of service members leaving before they're prepared to, I gave my life to the the service and 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 they took their pound of flesh, so to speak. I, I think that's something that can be very typical for service members.
1: For sure, there is that injured and wounded population that's leaving before their time. And I will say that there were extraordinary programs in place. And I was a benefactor of a lot of those programs. And at first I felt guilty being in them because I'm a colonel and I was in charge. I was a 06 group command when I started to start take a real look at this issue of PTSD and how it might be manifesting in my life and then having my physical impairment with that, there was a lot of ego bruising and ego rebuilding in that process. And I when I talk to audiences, I really try to be very vulnerable about that piece because we came from a culture where our strength and our confidence and our compliance and are part of our professional reputation. And when those mm-hmm. things get put into question, it's like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. So I had an opportunity, believe this or not, to try out the FBI and I realized that they're a lot more serious than I wanted to be in terms of it, it was a very serious law enforcement culture. And I was excited to be an analyst, but I just found that wasn't for me. Then the military said, what about your interest in child protective services? I'm an adopted child. I I have an adopted child. I care about children, but realized, no, I have no bandwidth for that work. But I got to do this during my transition before my actual retirement date, And that's how I landed with Psych Armor, is because it was a nonprofit. It was about education. It was about serving a community that I cared about. And in that bouncing around. And some people do that after their actual retirement date and they have their DD-214. I was really grateful that the military allowed me to test out a couple of places. And I felt safe doing that because I still had my active duty paycheck. So I'm really grateful. And at that point, my ability to deploy, my ability to even, I was in a transition for sure, rebuilding. So I feel really grateful about that.
0: And and again, I think there are uh, a lot of resonances with a lot of service members as they transition. That piece about the egos, you were talking about that. They offered to let me drive a desk for another two or three years. And in my mind, I was like, I, I'm a senior non-commissioned officer. If I can't run with the 17-year-olds, there's no need for me to still be in the military, right? there Again, there's that concept of I must be that Sergeant France thing. And, and there was really no understanding of not being that. So there was that identity transition. And then, like you said, my first job out of the military, I was there for 18 months. I was one of that statistics of the rapid changeover of finding what I wanted to do. And I was lucky to be able to have that sort of stability there. And again, this how your story would resonate with so many individuals in how they're leaving the military to be able to find what their next mission is.
1: Yes. And I think that part of of my transition it was recalibrating my identity because let's face it, we wore our power symbols, we wore our occupational symbols. You just look at each other, you know where you've been, what you've done, and where you stack up in the chain of command. And there's a lot of clarity there. So the other part of it is we can do all of these exercises in the transition workshops, what I'm good at, what do I enjoy? And where's the intersection? And that'll tell me my profession. But it really it it is a process and to trust the process and It will emerge. If you're anything like me, I want it done right the first time, High expectations of myself to look appropriate and professional. It's a messy process, but I think that there are so much, I think the term is the sea of goodwill. Dempsey, mm-hmm. I think, said that with the nonprofits and corporate America and the support certainly for wounded warriors, like it was in my case, it, it is there. And swimming in that might feel a little choppy, but it does get smoother.
0: <laughs> and so one of the things that that I understand about your work is you have your lived experience of the military. You also have this, the, the new experience of being a wounded warrior, for example, or having your, your physical challenges is, is and things like that. One of the conversations that we've been necessarily having in the military and veteran space is the importance of cultural responsivity related to military and veteran culture. It's what really psych armor is trying to do, yeah. but also how it in, intersects with the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion, as you mentioned earlier, we, we can't forget that the other aspects of DEI, gender, race, sexual preference, ethnicity, et cetera, age, you have been focusing on addressing intersectionality mm-hmm. between inherent culture, right? Our our culture of origin and our culture of lived experience when it comes to military culture.
1: I'll just start that kind of thought. Look at my own life. I'm a Native American woman. I have a disability. I'm a woman. (laughs) I have come from an organizational culture that's understood by less than 1%. And I, I think it's that stability of understanding where I where my piece of the puzzle worked in the military big puzzle and going through that now and helping organizations understand that military members by themselves are a underrepresented group they're a small group they have a vulnerability about them in terms of the demands of reintegrating into a society again that they were enculturate it for whether it be two years or 28 years. And there's a lot of unlearning about that. And so as a result, I want to encourage organizations to think about including military members as a piece of their diversity initiatives, but also to remember that there's tremendous diversity within the military subpopulation. And I like it when I see work where that says you don't have to just be one thing, that there is a sub-identity and there's sub-components that make up your point of view, your worldview that can enhance organizations.
0: And I think that's one of the challenges when we start to bring an an experience of occupation like military service into the DEI conversation. Veterans lose some of that other inherent diversity, equity, and inclusion aspects and get roped into, well, all women veterans are X, for example. And, And somehow some organizations might seem to miss the mark by relying more heavily on the service member and veteran aspect and not really differentiating those uh, unique subpopulations.
1: Yes, I, I, I'm starting to think about the ageism that is out there right. too. And yeah. I actually listened to a podcast that said, Wear your hair down, look more youthful, bring phrases into your parlance, if you will, to appear younger and more relevant. And I thought, wow, it's 2022, and I'm getting this advice as a 52 year old woman to to not be me. And so that's, I think, the DEI be conversation that age certainly needs to be a part of that because we know there is an inherent tension between, okay, boomer, I'm a digital right. native, and so another. Part of that uh, conversation is the age piece. And I think that's me projecting a little bit, uh, but I, I found that just really interesting because I am doing meaningful work in this area. And I found myself listening to that kind of a podcast.
0: No, and I and I think that's critical. And I think that may be very different depending on what sector someone goes into. When I left the military and I was in my mid-40s after a 22-year career, and I went to the clinical space, the ageism was flipped because people want an older therapist, like if they have a 27 year old therapist are sort of looking at that. But my contemporaries at my age, like I was just starting out in the profession wow. and my contemporaries at my age had been doing it for 15, 20 years. And so mm-hmm. there's this idea of almost like the military, our lives went on pause, especially I think we're talking you and I as career service members that we come out with a huge whack of experience. But then we're emerging into something that's almost totally unknown and it feels a little bit like starting over, especially can be difficult if you maybe you're experiencing some disabilities, for example, or especially if you're used to being yes sir, no sir, yes sergeant, no sergeant, like being someone of position and authority, and now you don't have that as part of your identity anymore.
1: I think that finding these narratives, I'm a a lifelong learner, that I'm constantly learning in terms of my own personal work. I'm doing a lot of reading about moving from role to soul in terms of an identity to gracefully move into 50, 60, 70. And so I think it's incumbent upon myself to make sure that my own stuff in terms of what's between my ears is in the most helpful place. And I think transitioning under a medical disability, that to me, like, it's just a cost of being Dino Cooper. I have (laughs) physical health, I have mental health, and I have to do my work to stay where I want to stay. And I love the, I think leading indicators is a term that we're seeing. It's absolutely critical to take care of what's between your ears. and. In my own lifetime, it was like, don't write bad checks. Don't drink and draw, Don't cheat on your spouse when you're deployed to this more positive. Do go in and check out your own thinking and do go in and cleanse your own assumptions when you find yourself had a, a pattern of stickiness in, in an area or with a particular individual, whatever it might be. That's exciting.
0: And and I think in there have been these conversations about we just don't need to change our behavior as we leave the military. We need to change the way that we think. And what I was going to say, and you identified it perfectly, was that kind of self-introspection that you're doing is necessary, but not all veterans have that experience. Not all veterans are told, really, you need to understand who you are and who you want to be. And and I went through the transition process in 2013. It was better than it was in 2003. And I'm certain that it's better now, obviously, than, than it was when I went through. But it was more about transactional transition as far as you give me your experience, I'll give you your resume. You show me your wardrobe, I'll show you how to dress. It was transactional. It wasn't about how do we change the way that we think about who we are. And like you said, we're having those conversations now.
1: Yeah, I love that distinction from transactional transition to transformational transition. It's an inside job and nobody can do that work for us. And other than to just put out cues, how happy do you want to be? How like the joke is, why is that dog sitting on the nail? It says when it hurts enough, the dog will get up. <laughs>
0: it's, but I think that's a really great point. And I think some veterans and, and maybe some veterans are like, I need to continue to sit on this nail because I don't know what else to do or I don't have any other. I. It's always been this. It has to be when I really like that. it's It's we have to do the own work. And then on the other side, veterans get out and they have to engage with organizations. And that's something else that you've started to work on is how organizations are prepared to receive veterans. It's the idea of how veterans express their readiness to support service members as they're transitioning veterans after they've transitioned related to what the terminology even is. Veteran friendly, veteran ready, these kind of things are, this is something that you're starting to work on now as well.
1: Yeah, it was maybe just coincidentally, it all came together with my own confusion about what these terms mean. And then an opportunity that PsychArmor gave me to help a group think about what it means to be vet ready. And I think when the good things happen in my life, it's usually I just get out of the way and these things happen. In this case, preparing for that presentation, I was just like, do we really know what we're talking about? There's no consensus on that. And I found it confusing. So I wanted to put this into a framework that was visual and easy to understand. And it seemed like people were finishing with that ready as the end state. And to me, that's like ready for what? And there's still more that organizations can do huh? because it's a tough transition, like to our earlier part of the conversation from the we will to the I will. There's a book that Justin wrote from we will to at will, that and uh, me orientation versus we. So people are who are in the military, we get docked if we ever start talking in pronouns that have too many eyes in it. And it feels wrong eventually to talk like that because we know nothing is accomplished just by our brilliant influence or personality or project management plan. I think that what I've seen with the organizations I've been exposed to is that they do do care about bringing the work ethic and the strong value orientation um, into their organizational culture that veterans bring. So, what I'm hoping to do is start this conversation around let's have some clarity around what these terms mean and how we would measure them and what indications. Would we have to see or what data would we have to see to say that you're not just philosophy friendly, but you're actually engaged with your veteran population in a way that allows them to really feel like they belong now with you?
0: Yeah, I I like that concept in thinking about it as a continuum, as you were talking about this outer to an inner ring, And I can imagine that just like any other continuum, that there's revolutions that a company may at one point be fully or one aspect of one organization may be fully veteran engaged, but another aspect of the larger organization may not be. Maybe I'm thinking Amazon right now. They have a really strong veteran group, but I can't imagine that All of the company like Amazon is as engaged in military and veterans support as some of their employee resource groups, for example. So I, I really like that idea of being able to say, organization, where are you? And you can't tell where you are. You need a map, right? You need to be able to know this is what this means and where you think you are. You're actually, there are ways that you can actually benefit, not just the service members and veterans, but for the organization. 1000%.
1: And I think to keep it like human centered, a design methodology says we're dealing with a human being who is experiencing your organizational culture, trying to belong in there to be productive. So in terms of that bullseye, the other circular model that I like to use being a person from HR is the resource life cycle, An individual is recruited, then they onboard, and then they're developed, they're utilized, sustained, and they transition. In the military, I always use the dust to dust as a way to remember the human right, resource lifecycle. So you're right. There might be really, an organization might be really strong in how they recruit veterans, but then they might be very weak in how they provide professional development opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because like we both joked around, we're highly educated people because the military invested time and money to these degrees that we are both probably really grateful to have. And so I think that by using the human resources life cycle as a way an employee experiences how they enter and leave an organization, on top of this language of positive philosophy of vet-friendly, to be super positive, I feel like there is a very strong commitment to be vet-friendly in corporate life today. We're not living the Vietnam era of your father, as we were talking about earlier. Those guys and gals came back with a public that didn't appreciate the service and how it had been executed. So there are lots of indications that people want to hire vets, they want to hire spouses of vets, and just want to help that really be a positive by giving them a good framework so that they know, I don't just do this training online, and that's good for a life that has never has to be real looked at again. So I I think that uh, it's exciting to be a part of an effort that's trying to bring more definitional clarity, more indication, more measures of if you're Friendly with positive policy, are you actually really engaged, changing policy and procedures to maximize how veterans or their spouses experience your organizations?
0: And again, identifying yeah. that and quantifying that, and saying that the desire to hire veterans is necessary, but not sufficient to be engaged, right, in an organization who thinks, sure, I hire veterans, we have potlucks on Veterans Day, and we, we have a board in the hallway that thanks you and, and things like that, that without any understanding of that's being, maybe that's even, as you were saying, that's being invested, but it's definitely not making sure that everyone in your organization is ready, and it's certainly not engaging them. And organizations will want to move towards that highest level of support Like you said, not just to be able to support the veterans, it's mutually beneficial for organizations. And I I think that's a really great project that I hope to see come to to fruition soon. Just because that conceptually helping organizations say this is where you're at and this is what you need to do to get to the next level.
1: Yes, uh, Psych Armor is invested in that because their the whole bottom line premise is culture. And we all get it that culture matters, culture trumps strategy, and now we're talking about leaving a highly structured culture to join a variety of different corporate cultures and what individuals attract or self-identify, whether they work for Amazon or, in my case, not work for the FBI. (laughs) Uh, That's an individual journey kind of thing. But I, I feel like we can do better there to be more helpful to organizations, whether they're profit or nonprofit. We should clean up our language there, and provide really good measurement and evaluation of what that means and what it would look like. And it's not, oh, you did this course and you're good forever. I, I do think like a pilot coming from the Air Force, there is that you know how to fly the plane, and we've tested you rather frequently to make sure that you're still qualified to fly the plane. But I think veteran-engaged organizations that are so engaged like that, they're pivoting and they're doing iteration and they're experimenting in this volatile, disruptive world. And that there are companies that are truly using their traditional HR processes to ensure that. But veterans are unique and belonging in that sense of, I make a difference here. I am valued. I work hard because I care about the why of who we are. I think that's one of the reasons that companies like veterans because it go it's in the heart as much as it is in the in the just effort
0: and And, as you you tried so hard not to to be negative, for example, but we can also smell b s. Veterans are very good at learning whether somebody's really very legitimate or they're just faking it, which may be if organizations are just saying, "I'm vet friendly and there's a slogan on the door," then the veteran will smell that a mile away, and we won't stay very long. It'll will end up moving on, which is not good for the veteran, not good for the organization. So again, there's this idea of a fully engaged individual who was a veteran really supported by a fully engaged organization in supporting that veteran. I, I think it's a great concept. And again, we could probably talk for hours on this because it's this something that that really is something that's resonating with me. So if people wanted to find out more about the work that you're doing or maybe interested in, in hearing more about some of these things, how could they follow you or get in contact?
1: Oh, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a presence with Psych Armor and this idea of nonprofits. We exist to improve a social condition. The do-gooders who are taking off where government can't quite get there or where limited resources and a a tight budget, we really want to help and improve a social condition. And being a Native American woman, I just wanted to finish with this practice from Native American culture. Back in tribal times where warring times, that Native leaders recognized that when their warriors went off to combat, they saw terrible things. They endured they behaved, let's face it, terrible ways mm-hmm. to win. Mm-hmm. And before they came back to the village, they would have special ceremonies that involved involve dancing. But it was basically cleansing and washing you off and recognize that as a step before you came back into the tribe. And Native Americans happen to be the by proportion, the largest minority population relative to its size across America. It's just warrior and Native American are, in my mind, almost synonymous culturally. I think that's what we're trying to do in this way is wash you off a bit, wash your mind off a little bit and get you ready to enter a new organization that really wants you. And sometimes they just don't know how to help you really belong. And at the end of the day, it's just human beings making other human beings connected and valued and feeling that true sense of connection that's i think what we're trying to do there.
0: because reintegrating those warriors back into the culture as you mentioned they were necessary like they, they were needed to not be warriors anymore because they needed to be whatever it was the the hunters or the gatherers or the caregivers or tribal leaves whatever it was they couldn't afford to go Sit and collect disability, for example, and not do anything. Right? They were. It was beneficial for the warrior to be cleansed from the the combat, but it was also beneficial for the community because a community needed them, and, and they need us now.
1: Yeah, and so I think that's a beautiful idea. I think it might be more about moral injury than maybe PTSD. Yeah. When I got introduced to the concept from a friend of mine at War College, we were talking about it. Whether it was the moral injury and you do bad things, you experience bad things and trauma is unpleasant, but it's it's a process to get back. And I just, I want to help organizations help the warrior, help themselves, but also help them in that process. And there's a norm around that. That's just, oh, it's time for the cleansing ceremony before you reintegrate into tribal life. And this isn't, let's go get drunk at the uh, Falcons or other practices that we know of from our time deployed this was quite spiritual and quite cultural and unique to Native American culture but I think the idea is still valid. yeah
0: no I I absolutely agree I think it was valid I really appreciate you coming on the show today
1: thank you so much I love the work you do Dwayne and thank you for your own service and the skills you have to turn a conversation into something that'll be interesting for others to think about
0: Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. The first point that I'd like to make is a unique quirk of military culture that isn't often discussed. The difficulty that veterans have with ambiguity in post-military life. As Dino mentioned in our conversation, one of the things that veterans need to learn after leaving the military is the uncertainty that exists in the civilian world that simply wasn't there in the military. As she said, everyone had their rank and authority displayed. One glance at another person's uniform told you everything that you needed to know, what branch of the military they were in, what their rank was whether they were officer enlisted, where they fit in the hierarchy relative to where you are, and where the two of you were in relation to the rest of the military, in the same unit, in the same occupational specialty, all of it. And that certainty didn't just apply to knowing who, when, and where to salute someone. When I woke up on any given morning for over two decades, I knew where I needed to be and when I needed to be there, usually what uniform I had to wear when I got there, and hopefully what was going to happen when I did. Not always for that last one, or maybe even very often, But yes was yes and no was no, and if the answer was no, then we knew what we had to do. When a service member leaves the military, however, that certainty is no longer there. Supervisors go by first names, which may be familiar for officers, but it's certainly not the norm for us enlisted folks. But decisions are rarely made quickly and communicated clearly, and there are a lot more opinions and maybes than there are definites, and this is the way that it will be, kind of conversations. So I just wanted to touch on that brief point. If you're somebody that works with veterans, ask them about this. If the adjustment to ambiguity in post-military life was a struggle for them. I hope you have some time when you do ask them because you're probably going to get an earful. Now, I wanted to make that first point briefly because it was something interesting that came up for me after my conversation with Dino. The second point is something that I want to spend a bit more time on because my conversation with Dino sparked some thoughts in me that I've been chewing on for a couple of days. If you're a frequent listener, you know that we here at Behind the Mission and at PsychArmor are concerned with both applying principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion to the military-affiliated population, as well as ensuring that DEI principles are considered when supporting subpopulations of those who served and those who care for them. On the one hand, military culture as a distinct culture to be considered amongst the other diversity considerations, like race, ethnicity, gender, etc., but on the other hand, honoring the intersectionality of those other diverse populations within the military. As is often the case with these conversations, my guest says something that sends me spinning off in a direction that I hadn't considered before. This time, it was when Dino said, military members are an underrepresented group. They're a small group. They have a vulnerability about them in terms of the demands of reintegrating into a society. Now, we've heard that before. Veterans and family members with direct connection to the military are an underrepresented group in many aspects of post-military life. Underrepresented in the workforce, underrepresented in the community, underrepresented in leadership, whether it be in the public or the private sector. Much of this has to do with the smaller military, but it also has to do with the widening gap between those who served and those who didn't. Where veterans are not underrepresented is in the justice-involved population, in the rates and incidents of death by suicide, in physical, psychological, and behavioral health concerns, divorce, and a number of other indicators of a lack of adjustment to post military life. This is related to the particular vulnerabilities that Dino was talking about. Those who served did so for a number of reasons, and a vast majority of them did so honorably and with distinction, but the military is a tough life and it can do a number on you. So, in that sense, like other populations, such as gender, age, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender representation, and others, veterans experience a measure of underrepresentation and greater vulnerability to undesirable life outcomes in post military life. There is a third point, and this is the one that has my wheels turning over the past couple of days. Unlike many of those other populations of focus, veterans are not under resourced. They're not marginalized in the way that many of these other populations are. This opens up a whole new set of problems, both with including veterans in unique populations, but can also open up problems when addressing intersectionality of these populations. Dr. Dino Cooper, a Native American woman who is a wounded warrior and a retired United States Air Force field grade officer, likely has access to vastly more resources that are available to her because of her military status than those she might have grown up with. I grew up as a blue-collar kid from suburban St. Louis. My mother is a seamstress, my stepfather is a maintenance man, my father was a security guard. We didn't have much growing up. We were socioeconomically disadvantaged, which is why the military was both a way of escape for me and a path to a better future. And the resources that I have access to are light years beyond anything that I have ever thought possible. The military is often both a blessing and a curse, but in this particular aspect, it most definitely is both. Like other populations, the military creates a measure of risk for poorer social determinants of health, but there is also a measure of privilege that comes from being a veteran that other populations do not have access to. Yes, of course, some veterans experience negative judgment from their peers, but in general, military service is not seen as something as negative. And yes, it's hard to ascribe a privileged status to a veteran who is in jail or unhoused or unemployed. But the fact is that that homeless, unemployed, incarcerated veteran likely has infinitely more resources than their non-military counterparts sitting right next to them. So, yes, veterans are underrepresented in post-military life, and they do have unique vulnerabilities that could lead to lesser life satisfaction. But they are not under-resourced or marginalized like other diversity populations. And that's important because that leads to a number of questions. Why? If the military-affiliated community is so well-resourced, the sea of goodwill, to refer to Dino's reference, then why do the vulnerabilities exist? Why the high numbers and rates of veteran death by suicide? Why the high rates of justice involvement or substance use concerns in the military? Yes, the military contributes to those factors, but the veteran status mitigates those factors through access to resources. Why are they still so significant? Another question is, if the military-affiliated community is so well-resourced, how does this impact someone whose intersectional identity includes military or veteran status? Does it create more vulnerability through a distinction in their subpopulations, as in you're not really one of us because you went off and did this other thing, for example? Is this privilege of veteran status something that is a hindrance to incorporating DEI principles and supporting the military and veteran population? And here's the one question that's been going on in my mind, and the optimist in me hopes that it's the one that we can really start to address as a community. Like so many things, the military and veteran community can be leaders both individually and collectively. Dino mentioned it in our conversation. Can we demonstrate that, yes, this population is underrepresented, and yes, they experience identifiable vulnerabilities unique to their culture and experience. But if this population is appropriately resourced, can we make a significant difference in those vulnerabilities? And if we can demonstrate that, can we then do the same thing for other populations to ensure that they are adequately resourced as well? In other words, once again, as veterans go, so go our nation. If providing resources to an underrepresented and vulnerable population makes a difference in their lives and improves the social determinants of health, how can we apply those lessons learned to other underrepresented and vulnerable populations that are not as well resourced? Three questions I have for you. If veterans are so well-resourced, why the high numbers of negative life events in the veteran population? How does the intersectionality of a privileged status like military service impact subpopulations of veterans that are traditionally under-resourced? And perhaps most important from my perspective, how can we take the lessons that we're learning from resourcing a vulnerable population and apply them to other populations? I don't have the answers, of course. I'm just one guy trying to move a mountain, a pebble at a time. But guess what? If there are enough of us picking up pebbles at the same time, then the mountain will be moved before we know it. So that's a little bit of a heavy conversation that came to me and it's still rattling around in my head. Overall, my conversation with Dino was related to transition. And that's the topic of this week's PsychArmor Resource of the Week, the course What You Should Know About Transition. Transitioning from military service can be difficult. It's more than just hanging up your uniform and putting on civilian clothes. In this course, you'll receive a brief overview of resources and tools to consider during your transition. If you or someone you know is about to or has recently transitioned from the military into post-military life, check it out through a link in the show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player of choice, as well as at psychomaorg forward slash podcast. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, And make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.